Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Monday, June 2nd, 2014, and since it's Monday, it's time for a listener feedback show. This is where you send me emails with topic for Jack, question for Jack, comment for Jack, story for Jack, video for Jack, article for Jack, something like that. Question for Jack, whatever. But one word followed by for Jack in the subject line. You email me at jack at the survival podcast.com and uh, you make your point or give me your question in one or two sentences and you give me all your details after that. And if you do that, you might get on the air. Uh, we get a couple hundred of those a day, so you're not guaranteed to get on the air by any means, but I try to get a good variety on every week. Today's a hybrid show, though. Today is a hybrid Monday show uh, because I've had a lot of questions lately about the economy. I see some things on the economic horizon that I think a lot of people have no idea about. Um, I think you guys probably do have at least some idea about it. Just not everything I'm going to talk about today because I've talked about it all before, but I'm going to kind of pull it together today and tell you why there's a lot of uncertainty about the future of our economy. I'm actually going to kick today's show off with a uh, piece by John Pugliano, uh, expert council member, whose opinions I greatly uh, respect. And I, I agree with much of what he has to say, but I think I have some disagreements. And uh, my view is today that we'll give you both of our views, and then you can decide which one to use in your life going forward. And keep in mind that John is a professional investment advisor, and I'm not. But I am also, uh, I don't know, I think I have a different view than most people do about economic analysis. And uh, I think I look into some areas where people that get into numbers a lot tend to not look. Though John's pretty good at stuff like that, so... I don't know. We'll see if we really disagree or maybe we just have some different conclusions about the analysis. Before I do that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is Survival Gear Bags. Hey, you want great gear? Go to Survival Gear Bags. They have great gear. You want great bags to put the gear in? Go to Survival Gear Bags. They've got that too. Check it out. I mean, Survival Gear Bags has been around with us for a very long time. How long? Well, let me tell you how this worked out. Kelly John Doe was one of our first members of TSP's forum. I think his forum ID number is like 62 or something like that to give you an idea of how long Kelly's been around. He was in the fulfillment industry, and he said, hey, you know what I could do? I could put some group buys together for people. He did that. People on the forum liked him, and he thought, hey, I could turn this into an actual business. Instead of just doing group buys, he set up survival gear bags. I brought him on as a sponsor about a year later when we had a sponsor fall off, and I actually had a space for one. He's been with us ever since, and I love what he does so much. Guess what he does? He manages the Survival Podcast Gear Shop. Yeah, TSP Gear is run by the same guy that runs Survival Gear Bags. That tells you how much I appreciate Kelly and the work that he does and the ethics that he has. Check him out today, survivalgearbags.com. Next up today, Safe Castle Royal. Boy, talk about a long time. Talk about somebody that's been with us for a very long time. Vic Rontala has been a sponsor with us so long, he tried to be a sponsor before I was willing to take any. Um, I was just getting started. I didn't feel we could do a good job for a sponsor yet because I didn't have enough audience members. And Vic said, I want to do something, man. Let's, let's, let's make something happen. And eventually we decided to launch the sponsor program. He was the first sponsor we ever took. He's been with us now for over five years. January of 2015, uh, January 1st, in fact, he will have his sixth year anniversary as a sponsor. I don't know many podcasts that last long, but sponsorships of podcasts, we got something special with Vic and Safe Castle Royal. Check them out. Everything for your prepping needs and 
They have a discount buyer's club. 49 bucks one time, discounts for the rest of your life on just about everything they sell. Awesome, awesome program. People buy it every day. If you're a member of my member support brigade, he gives you that membership for free. I think that's great. And uh, it tells you what a great supporter of the show Vic has been for a very long time. Uh, again, Safe Castle Royal, check them out today. Uh, MSB Discount Vendor of the Day, Old Grouch Military Surplus. Hey, you want real military surplus, not Chinese crap? Check out Old Grouch. And if you're an MSB member, 10% off everything at Old Grouch Military Surplus. Uh, one of the few true real mill surpluses, uh, mill surplus stores left in, in business in the country today. Most of it's Army, Navy, this, military surplus, that. Again, it's just Chinese knockoff crap, not real actual mill surp gear. Next up today, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. Help support the show at 18.3 cents an episode, and you get discounts on stuff you're probably buying every day for your preparedness lifestyle, from guns to gardens and everything in between. We even have discounts on things like silver and gold. Uh, check it out today. Just go to survivalpodcast.com, click on Members. If you are military, law enforcement, or Peace Corps, or a first responder like an EMT, a paramedic, or a firefighter, either active duty or prior service, you do qualify for a service discount. And you can obtain that by emailing me at jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com. Again, jack at com, And put service discount in the subject line. Give me a sentence or two about your service, and I will respond to you with the discount code. Please do that before, not after you join the member support brigade. Again, to find out how to join... Just click on members at the survivalpodcast.com or the member support brigade banner in the right hand margin. With that, um, I want to uh, get into now. It's Monday, so we have Conflicted Monday. And I have scenarios for you today. Last week's Conflicted Monday scenario was how can you tell others about the need to prepare without making yourself a target for unwanted visitors in the future? And uh, this is something people have asked me a lot about because they're like, dude, you do a survival podcast. Everybody knows you're a prepper. I mean, don't you think that people will come from all over the world to take your stuff when the zombies march? And the answer is, I hope for their sake they don't. Um, I think that preppers are divided easily into two types of pre pre preppers. I think we have paranoid preppers and we have pragmatic preppers. And I think pragmatic preppers even at times go, I wonder if someone's, but I think when they really think about it, when they really think about it, like, well, if, the, if there was a situation where things were that bad, that my brother-in-law who'll never listen to me about this stuff needed to come to me, would I really want him to not come? Would I want him to sit out there and starve and die and whatever? Or would I want to bring as many people as I could under the, the, the single tent because there's going to be strength in numbers. And I think that the entire concept about, oh man, nobody better know you have preps, is retarded. It's retarded. It's retarded. One more time, it is retarded to even think that way. I know a bunch of you are upset with me now. I'm sorry. It is. It's retarded. It is not realistic at all. First of all, people that are in such a way that they need what you have aren't going to travel from Atlanta, Georgia on foot to Tallahassee, Florida to take your crap. All right? It's logistically impossible if you're in that bad of a scenario. Number two, if you're in that kind of scenario, the true breakdown, zombie apocalypse, okay, um, you existing makes you a target. The fact that you're there means you're surviving on something So you're a target anyway, period. 
In every breakdown that we've ever looked at, that has been the case. So you're going to be a target anyway. So your question then is, do you want to be a target on your own with all your crap in a pile underneath your house or in your bunker hiding, or do you want to be a target with good people on your side that you've united that have loyalty to you because you're providing for them? I can't provide for everybody, and you're not going to. You're not going to. But I, I, I have to tell you, like, you know, if my if my brother-in-law and my niece and my nephew and my sister-in-law show up at my house in some kind of a disaster, I'm not turning them away anyway. Well, what about the guy down the road that hears you talking at 7-Eleven? He probably can't remember what he bought for, what kind of beef jerky he bought that day. And I'm probably not in 7-Eleven talking about it. Right? I mean, this is the, the fundamental reality. The fundamental reality, if you were some kind of raider or something like that, and you had a list of where all the prepper houses were, that would be a good place to not go. That's a good place to not go. Well, they have stuff. They also have bullets. And they have these things you put them into called firearms. And they've made a predetermined decision that they are prepared not only to have what they need in, in a downtime, but if somebody actually means them harm, to make them go away as a member of the Dirt Nap Society. So while I don't think you should be broadcasting what you do from a bullhorn on top of your roof or something like that, I think telling your, your friends uh, about it, telling your neighbors about it, telling your family about it is something you just do. You just do. And, and when they say, well, I'll just come to your house, you might say, that's not going to be possible. That's just not going to be possible. Depends on who they are, though. You can turn your mother away, your brother, your grandchildren. I mean, the reality is, if we're actually worried about this type of a breakdown, which is the long shot that could happen, the last thing we need is to be divided when it happens. We will go, if we have something like this happen, very, very swiftly from isolationist to recruitment. And the reason I can say that with confidence is it's what's happened every single time any major cataclysm has happened, and we examine it in historical context from, you know, most recently, like the Balkan Wars. All the way back to like the Erdsatz during the, the the war between the states, or some people call it the Civil War, um, it was always about people working together to get through the situation. Well, this time will be different than any other time in history. Okay, what are the odds of that? How many things have we covered in history segments? So you go, oh, that's happened a bunch of times. So I, I'm just not even that concerned about it. I'm really not. Now, I wouldn't get a t-shirt that says, I have, you know, six months worth of food at my house. You should too. There is a common sense level of OPSEC. But when it comes to, I mean, who are you talking to? I mean, if you're running around like you're in some kind of Amway scam, stopping every single person on the street with a business card about being prepared, saying, you look like a sharp person that needs to be prepared for the zombie apocalypse. Here's my number so you can call me and find out how to do it. You tell two friends and I'll tell two friends and it, like that. Well, then, yeah. But if you're talking about the people that you would actually have a conversation with in the first place, you're either talking about people that you have happenstance conversations with that don't know you anyway. They're like, oh, six months ago, I talked to a guy. He was blonde. And uh, we were standing in line at the DMV. And now that the zombies are trying to eat my brains, I think his name was Peter. 
and he was from Sheboyganville. So maybe I should go to Sheboyganville and steal Peter's. Come on, really? Okay. Or people that you do genuinely know, if you're telling them this stuff, obviously they're people you trust and you want on your side in a bad situation. That's how I feel. All right, so today's Conflicted Monday scenario. And remember, in these scenarios, it is the extreme. It is zombies having puppy kittens with puppies and kittens, okay? It is, it's raining kitten puppies, whatever, okay? Today's Conflicted Monday scenario. Grocery stores and mini-marts have been ransacked of all food. Your group is low on food and in desperate need of resources. What other locations would you start looking for food or possible supplies to barter with? So you're out of food. You and your little group, you, you hold up and you didn't tell anybody and you ran out of food and supplies. And now there's other people out there that have some stuff, but you don't have crap. You ain't got no food. You can't ransack the stores because it's already happened. They're already empty. And when they say, well, yeah, we've got some extra beans, you can't barter for it because you're out of crap, too. Now, just saying if you had a, a group, a real group, with some size put together, and you might have some labor, and uh, I don't want to give away my answer to this one or nothing like that, but uh, what would you do? You're out of stuff, period. Food and barter implements. There's no stores, there's no bugging out to Walmart, which is a bad idea to begin with. If you were looking to salvage and scavenge, where would you go? Why would you go there? What would you specifically be looking for? And how might it assist you in the future? Because you're probably not going to find a lot of food. So maybe you need to think creatively with this one, giving you a hint that uh, certain resources that other people walked right by when massaged in certain ways could become valuable again and then be bartered with for the things that you don't have. Just just a thought there. The way we play this, guys, you go to the survivalpodcast.com, look up 1358, and, uh, and give us a comment in the comment section about what you would do. Again, grocery stores, and, grocery stores and mini marts have been ransacked of all food. You're out of food, and you're in desperate need of resources, period. What other locations would you start looking for food? Possible supplies to barter with. And this is in a total grid down apocalyptic scenario. Episode 1358, give us your comments. All right, so real quick, let's talk about the year that was the episode. I want to tell you the story of somebody that lost her flipping mind today. Edward's heart, Isabella's soul. Do you remember Queen Isabella? She. And this is the for those that are new listeners. Thirteen fifty eight is the year that we're talking about today because it's the episode number, and these are put together by Alex Shrug at the TSP Wiki. TSPWiki.com is the preparedness wiki. You learn all about history, preparedness, um, everything from sustainable living, and you come up with it. We've got it over at the TSP Wiki, where you can be a contributor as well. So Edward's heart, Isabella's soul. Do you remember Queen Isabella? She was the wife of King Edward II of England. She had him put to death by having a red-hot poker shoved up his, well, it was painful. She also had King Edward's heart cut out and set aside in a small chest, so to speak. She was eventually sidelined by her son, Edward III, and packed off to a nunnery. Now she's died at the age of 62. At her request, she will be buried in her wedding dress along with her husband's heart. She will finally have in death what she could not have, his undivided heart. My take by Alex Shrugged, who puts these together for us, it's difficult to understand Queen Isabella in this light. 
One can understand the power play she engaged in with the barons, and one can understand her desire to manipulate her son, the present King Edward III of England, or can even forgive her desire to have her own husband put to death in a horrible way, considering the embarrassment she must have felt with multiple di uh, multiple dialances in public. Why would she want to be buried with the king's heart is beyond comprehension. She seems like a lost soul now. She will leave the majority of her holdings to her grandson, the Black Prince Edward, rather than her son, who banished her to the nunnery. I think she just went flaming nuts. She's in her 60s. She's been locked up in a nunnery for 15 years at this point. Um, she was already clearly nuts to begin with. She had her husband executed, but she had a red-hot poker inserted in his poop. Right? So, uh... So that is, you're already kind of nuts, and then you're living with the fact that that's what you did. Obviously, she always wanted him to love her. Of course, she wouldn't have kept his heart for all those years. So by the time that they buried her, she was just plumb nuts. Sometimes when we look at historical things and we look for the lesson and we look for the context, we just have to accept that sometimes people are insane. And sometimes people that weren't insane go insane. And sometimes people that were A tad insane, slowly, you know, devolve over time. And I think that's what you got here. You have a, 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 a queen that's just off a rocker. And you also wonder, with some of the things you hear about royalty throughout the ages, if some of the bloodline issues with inbreeding might not have a predisposition to wackiness. I'm just saying. Anyway, with that, let's get into the main topic of today's show. What I want to play for you now is a response uh, that John Pugliano did. It was originally going to be on a uh, Friday show. This was a listener that wrote in a question about the future of the economy and said trading volumes are low, certain output indicators don't look very good. Where do you think we're going with this? And, uh, you know, John has a really in-depth, well-thought-out response. Let me play that for you right now, and I got to come back after that and tell you Some of the other things going on and uh, some of my thoughts on our economy going forward, most of it based on feedback that's come in from you guys over the past couple weeks. This is John Pugliano from the Expert Council, and I'm calling in to answer Ali's question as to my thoughts on the direction of the economy. And let me first say that I agree with his overall assessment of the economy. If you've been following my comments, reading my blog, you know where I stand on the uh, lack of volume on the exchanges as they make these new highs and where my... Uh, what, what my portfolio mix is right now. I'm not going to go into all that now, but you can look it up if, if you if you want to see that. And what I want to focus on is, as bad as I think things are, I, I, I don't think we are going to see a crash um, that's going to lead us to an economic collapse. There very certainly can be a 10 or 20% correction. That wouldn't be anything out of the normal. That would be something we're going to, we're going to see in a normal business cycle anyways. Um, we were down 12% in 2012. We were down 20% in 2011. We were down the 40, 50% in 2008. So all that's in recent memory, and I don't think that we could, uh, I, I am very sure that we could hit those lows again if it came to that. Uh, but I'm not projecting a total economic collapse, and I think you should go out and put all your money into precious metals. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying be cautious and that I am I am being very cautious. And again, having said that, I want to go back and get a quote from Alan Greenspan. If you'll remember, one of the few things that he said right in the last couple of decades was that uh, during the dot-com bubble, he, he uh, coined the phrase irrational exuberance. 
he was absolutely right that a bubble was forming and that there were the stock prices and the valuations during the dot-com bubble were totally irrational. However, had you taken his advice and gotten out when he had that quote, when he testified before Congress in December of 1996, you would have been about three and a half years early because the market didn't crash uh, until about the summer of 2000. And you would have probably lost around a 400% return on the NASDAQ. So even though I'm saying I'm very concerned, and even though I've been wrong for the last three and a half months, the market keeps going up. Um, it doesn't mean that Alan Greenspan wasn't right back in 1996, but again, if you know, if you'd taken his advice then, you would have missed it. So what I'm saying is, is just because things are irrational doesn't mean the market doesn't go up. Um, I do think that the Federal Reserve and the administration, Republicans and Democrats, are going to do everything they can to keep this economy floating. We've we've gotten over $4 trillion dollars in debt, or $4, $4 trillion dollars on the balance sheet of bonds and uh, uh, things that the Federal Reserve has invested in. We know that um, the Congress will easily drop $700 billion in stimulus, and then they'll do all the you know all those QEs that added up to, uh, to $4 trillion to this point. We know that uh, in the early days of the Obama, Obama administration, he was running over $1 trillion dollar deficits every year. So these guys will spend whatever they have to to get out of that. And by the way, just to give you an idea, when I, I talk in these trillions of dollars, right now the balance sheet on the Fed is somewhere, as I say, around $4 trillion. All 30 stocks in the Dow Jones Industrial Average, if you add up all their um, their net asset value, it comes out to about $4.8 trillion. So, in, so what the Fed has put on their balance sheet since this you know, so-called recovery could basically have bought 100% every company on the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Um, they're not above wasting money and throwing good money after bad, and I think they'll continue to do that. So let me, let me say something here quickly. Why I think it, it hasn't worked till now. We've got a lot of major headwinds. Um, that has to do with bad government all around the world. That has to do with extremely leveraged debt all around the world, both public and private sector are, are overwhelmingly underwater in their debt. Uh, but I think the biggest problem, even though those two are extreme, I think the biggest problem is the aging population and the low um, birth rate around the world, not just in the Western countries. I mean, it's the same way in China. There's a there's a quote that China is going to get old before they get rich. They're just not having enough children to support the um, the older people. And when you don't, I mean, this is simple economics, right? When you just don't have enough young people coming up to be buying New things, no matter what you do to stimulate the economy, isn't going to work. It's that you know the python that ate that ate the pig. It's going to take a long time for this baby boom to work its way through the economy. And now they're getting very old. Uh, they're going to be relying more on government services. They've they've squandered their wealth, and there's not enough young people to make up for it. So, in addition to all those problems and why, and that's why I think things haven't worked with all all the stimulus. I still don't think we're going to see a major crash. A major crush. I'm talking about a meltdown again. Yeah, we can we can have a 2008 uh, 50% drop. I'm not saying that's not possible, but as far as the total economy collapsing and um, zombies and apocalypse and things, I'm I'm not predicting that. I think that there are enough um, five good things, and I've alluded to these before, but I'm going to spell them out right now. There are five solid trends that are indisputable, and that they're going to lift us out of this. And if the Federal Reserve can keep this economy floating until they kick in uh, that the uh, the economy of the U.S. will be fine. And the five trends are, quickly, uh, the energy boom. I'm not going to 
belabor this, but fracking and horizontal drilling, the overall incredible amount of technology that's that's been going into energy exploration for the last 30 years is is just phenomenal at this point. It's spread from the U.S. into Canada. It's going into Mexico now. You're going to see those technologies go all around the world, and the world reserves for petroleum and natural gas are going to explode like no one's ever seen before, and we're going to have extremely cheap energy. I truly believe that. The second trend is automation. And whether we're talking about Google self-driving cars or 3D printing or um, automated machines that make hamburgers at McDonald's, I mean, just automation in in all aspects of our life that's, that has been phenomenal for the past 20 years, but it's going to cre- increase even more. And we are going to see just amazing efficiencies and productivity improvements that are going to lower the price of things because of automation. The third trend is the the expanding of the internet and I know it's been around 20 years but I'm telling you the internet is just coming out of its infancy and going into an adolescent stage it's it's going to grow like mad whether you're talking about the cloud or social media or the internet connectivity of of everything the internet of everything um, we are going to see the ability to transfer data and communications so cheaply that again is going to create these overall efficiencies with all the devices talking to each other and and making that automation that I talked about earlier, making all that work. Uh, the fourth trend is immigration, and this applies to the United States. We're going to be getting more brainiacs, more very intelligent engineers, people like that that are going to want to migrate here. I was recently on a couple trips to California and Florida, and in both places I heard Eastern European speakers all around me spending a lot of money. So people that are smart and people that are wealthy are coming here to spend their money, and we all know that this administration and the overall political environment right now is is, is dead set on bringing in more low-skilled immigrants into this country as well. And that is going to fuel uh, whatever we can't uh, get efficiencies on by automating, things like maybe the service industry, service sector, um, low-skilled jobs, uh, uh, maybe some of the construction businesses, um, yard yard work kind of things. Unskilled laborers are going to flood this country and fill that niche, and we're going to have very inexpensive services because of that. Uh, I'm not saying whether this is good or bad. I'm not saying what kind of social impact this may have on the welfare system. I'm just saying that's going to happen, and overall, that's going to that's going to help the low skilled end of end of the economy. Finally, the fifth trend, and this is a compilation of the four that I just talked about, is a U.S. manufacturing resurgence. We're going to see manufacturing in this company, in this country, um, just blossom to the way it was maybe in the build-up to World War II, or maybe even maybe even the way it was in the early 1900s, where there are going to be large and small-scale manufacturing that are just going to boom around this country, particularly in the areas of where we have the the, the very low energy. You're seeing the things that are blossoming right now in places like Louisiana uh, and in Texas. That's going to continue, and whether it's uh, small company entrepreneurs or big, uh, you know, Dow Chemical type manufacturing, you're going to see it all over the country, and it's going to be the convergence of those those other four trends I just talked about, with the cheap energy, the automation, the immigrants, and the connectivity of the internet, are going to spur that immigrate. They're going to spur that manufacturing um, boom. And again, that's going to create jobs and help spur the economy for another. I'm saying. 30 years. I think I think there's so much wealth that can happen with this that it'll keep the economy afloat for another generation. I really think that these trends are strong enough to counteract the complete lunacy 
um, that we see coming out of our political establishment. Um, and I don't think it's a panacea. I don't think there's not going to be a lot of bumps in the road. But I do think that road is going to continue and that this country is going to move on for the next 30 years. And I think that for people that are well-positioned, there will be a lot of money to be made. And what I advise people is is, is to not worry about what's outside of their sphere of influence. Worry about the things that you can control in your life and the ways that you can improve yourself because the economy is going to go on. It's just a matter of where you're going to be in that economy. One final thought on the stock market. If you look where the smart money appear to be parking their money right now, I believe they're buying and investing in U.S. Treasuries. Uh, Despite the fact that the uh, Federal Reserve has tapered, the interest rates continue to decline. As I record this today, the 10-year Treasury is at 2.44%. That's uh, significantly lower than it was six months ago. It's been going down most of this year, um, and I believe that that might be that what we're seeing is as the as the retail investors come into the market, the smart money is selling their stocks at these higher prices, and then they're parking their money in U.S. Treasuries. That's driving the interest rates down, and at the same time driving the U.S. dollar down. So watch the Treasuries, watch the dollar. Let's see what happens with that. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. All right, let's, I want to start out with John's four trends or fifth five trends and. Um, I don't disagree with them that they're happening, but I disagree with how much good it really will do. And maybe good in the long term, yes, but in the short term, I see almost every single one of them causing more harm, not making things better, Uh, especially from an employment and economic standpoint. So, and then the the fifth one, I actually question whether or not it's going to happen. That's the manufacturing resurgence. Okay, so here we go. <clears throat> Let's start out with the energy boom. Okay, great. I, I've actually been talking about the energy boom for two years. And I've said that I think the energy boom is one of the things that's actually going to prop up the United States uh, during the, these economic shifts. And that it's a can kicker for us. It actually will hold together the U.S. economy for longer than was otherwise possible, especially coupled with all the money that John was talking about that came into the U.S. economy by the Fed moving into their balance sheet, QE3, QE Infinity, all the bailouts, all of that stuff. But that stuff can't just go away. It's still there and it still matters. And I'll talk about why it still matters as you see another country finally clearing some some legacy debt from their, their books in a little bit later in the show. But so... Yes, it, it, it helps. But if you have an economy being derailed, if you have an aging population of people retiring and not enough working people to support the promise made to them through Social Security, if you have more and more people on government assistance, you now have one in seven people on food stamps, um, you have an unemployment number that's laughable, the number they give you. Uh, and this is another thing I forecasted years ago, in 2008, whenever we said the economy was going over for good. I said, no, and you'll see the unemployment numbers get a lot better, but they'll be lying to you about them, but it'll spur the economy into a false recovery because it'll restore confidence and things like that. The, the number they're giving you for unemployment now is complete bullshit because there's so many things that are not in that number. So one thing that's not in that number is if you've run out of unemployment benefits. You've had your 99 weeks of extensions upon extensions upon extensions. You still can't find a job, and they've cut you off, but you still don't have a job, and you're out there on some other form of assistance most likely by then, then you're not in the unemployment number, though you are unemployed. 
The other number, and this is the this is the true way they have screwed you as to what the unemployment number means. Not counted in unemployment are people that have never held a job. Well, well what do you mean? That's like that doesn't make sense. Okay, well here's how it works. It used to be, it used to be, or never have held a job and lost it to a layoff or a downsizing or something like that. It used to be that the majority of, of people in America, as young adults in high school, went out and got their first job. By like 15, 16, you wanted a car, you wanted some stuff and all. And then we all started just like teacupping our kids and buying them all kinds of shit that they don't have to work for anymore. And we went from a point where, you know, like when I was in school in the 80s, I bought an early 70s car for $400 to where kids today buy cars that I couldn't afford to drive for the first part of my adult life. Parents are going out and buying these kids on leases and payments and stuff like that, you know, BMWs. There's, there's 16-year-old kids driving around in BMWs. It's ridiculous. So the kid has no... See, if you do this, your child has no reason to go get a job. There's no reason for them to get a job. You've given them a car. You've paid for their gas. You've paid for their insurance. And you give them spending money. So why the hell would they get a job? So they don't enter the workforce in, in high school. And then if they go to college, they get loans and grants and mommy and daddy paying for that. So most kids anymore... Don't get a job in college. You know, not like my kid that went out and got a job uh, as a host at a restaurant as an entry-level position when he was 15 and stuck with that job to the point where he became the head bartender at the restaurant and he's got a job. Might not be the greatest job in the world, but it pays decent and he's moved up and he's, he's, he's employed. There's no way around him being employed. So what's not in the unemployment number are all the little teacups that were patted on the head and powdered on the butt way too long in life, went out, didn't get a job, then finally came out the other end of college. Now they have their degree in bitterness studies or whatever, and they have a whole bunch of student loan debt, and they still don't have a job. And they're sending out 500 resumes a week, or they're sitting around playing Tetris, one or the other. Usually, with most of these young people I see is one extreme or the other. They're killing themselves trying to find a job, but they're generally unwilling to take the entry-level job they should have took six or seven or eight years ago. That they never took, so they have no employment experience. And because the economy sucks, to be honest with you, employers don't need people that bad. And they're like, you have no experience at all? Goodbye. All right? So with that being the case, with that being the case, those people never entered the workforce, or if they did, they never impacted unemployment statistics because they had a temporary job for three weeks during Christmas where they went, oh, this is hard, and they quit. So those people really shouldn't count in the unemployment number all the way up until they start seeking a job. But the job seeker who's never had full-time employment, is not in the unemployment number. So when I look at something like, okay, we have this energy boom, and we're going to have cheap energy, what are we going to do with it? I mean, the, the way it helps the economy is us selling our gas to other places like China and the jobs that are created doing that and all. But you can only drive energy so cheap with this type of extraction, by the way. Um, the, the gas wells that we're putting in do amazingly well. And the fracking and horizontal drilling does a great job. 
I'm not saying environmentally it's safe. I'm saying when it comes to the extraction of fuel, it works really well. And a lot of people that are on the eco-greeny side, they keep poo-pooing it and saying it's not the promise that they're saying it is, and it doesn't do that, and they're going to be, the wells will be dry in four years or whatever. If that was the case, they wouldn't be all upset about it because the problem would be self-correcting, right? So they say, all, these, all this fracking's not really going to help anyway because there'll be no gas left in five years. And it's not really going to last 100 years. Well, then you wouldn't be all worked up if you were a Greenpeace type because you'd know that it's all a lie. and all the guys, so they, they really know that, it's it, yes, the, the sustainability of this energy boom is here for multiple decades. It does exist. But what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? And keep that question in mind as I go through these other trends. Automation. Automation's great. We're going to have all these jobs in automating things. But see, when we build the stuff to automate the fast food place, and we're done with that, we don't need one again for that fast food place for a long time. We need one guy as a tech that probably goes around and services 20 of them. So all of these things that are going on with automation, they're great for society. Right? Because... It frees up people to not do mundane bullshit. But without mundane bullshit to do, how does a person develop a work ethic? How do they develop a career path? How do they figure out what they like and what they don't like? How do they, how do they accomplish all these things? See, so I basically see it this way. For every job created in the automation industry, you're probably eliminating 10. So it's a 10 for one exchange. Then we have to ask ourselves, Do you really think we're going to be building all of the high technology components of these automation systems, the, doing the manufacturing, spinning out the boards, all of that stuff, using this cheap natural gas to fuel the factory in America? Or do you think that we'll continue to do the majority of our manufacturing in China? and Thailand, and Sri Lanka, and these other nations, because it's more cost-effective to do that. And I'll give you some supporting evidence that this trend is continuing right now, that more and more places are saying, hey, guess what? Um, it costs too much freaking money to do business in this country. And so we can do business for 25% of the cost in another country. Well, we're going to go do that. And the reality is the cost is like 10%, but by the time you add in all the little things that happen to, you know, by doing that, you're, you're down about a 25% reduction. But this is the reality for many people running businesses in this country today. If they could do business for almost the same price and just cost and just dollars, they would still outsource overseas because of all the bullshit they don't have to deal with. So the, the cost in, we think of the cost in labor. You know, well, a person in China works for a dollar a day or some other nonsense that we're being lied to about to begin with anyway. But, see, the cost to have you work for me is not your hourly rate. If it was only your hourly rate, um, even if the guy in China was, you know, making five bucks a day, which a few people over there probably do, but it's, it's still a little bit of a ridiculous, you know, false story you're being given. But let's say the average person in China makes 20 bucks a day, U.S. equivalent. And, uh, and I was paying you $15 an hour. If it ended there, if it ended there, I would still be better off from an economic standpoint doing business in America. Because I don't have to ship the stuff in. I'm going to get a better quality product in the end if I'm doing business that way. But see, you don't cost me $15 an hour. 
you cost me a whole bunch of insurances. You cost me a whole bunch of money in Social Security. I had another 7.5% just for that component. Then I've got workers' comp. And then you have all these pesky rights as a worker in this country that those people over there don't have. So you can constantly ask for more. And then there's a whole slew of compliance requirements that this country has that don't exist in any other country. And this is from financial to environmental, and, and, and it's just on and on and on and on. Now, there's countries that have more of it, and they're also screwed economically. These are countries like Europe, right? Uh, the whole, I know Europe's not a country, but the whole, you know, the whole Eurozone has far more restrictions on business than the United States does, which is why a lot of those people, the immigrants that we'll get to in a minute that John's talking about, still will come here. But that's not where the majority of our immigrants are coming from anymore, and it's not where the majority of those immigrants are going anymore. So automation is, is a two-edged sword, and unfortunately it's cutting in both directions negatively for us. One, it is a job killer in the long run. It, it, it eliminates jobs. For every job it creates, I say it eliminates ten. I mean, go to, go to Taco Bueno or uh, Taco Bell or Burger King or McDonald's, any of these places, and, and think to yourself, would I actually not have a better experience if this place was fully automated or 90% automated? Don't I think that a computer that I just walked up and pushed what I wanted, slid my debit or credit card through there, would actually be able to be more accurate and swifter than the person? And I love the people that are like, well, I like the human interaction face-to-face. Really? Really? Sure? You're sure about that? In those environments you do? I mean, I'm not putting down people that work fast food. It's a starting point. But more and more, it's not a starting point. It's where people just they can't do anything else. That's what they do. We were just recently at a Chili's. Uh, my wife and I said, we'll have dinner at Chili's. And we're sitting down, and they have this little console sitting on the table. And it let us do things like add a drink to our order. You know, want another round of drinks, just push a button, all of a sudden a drink show up. And we had a waitress, you know, a typical waitress, and doing the typical waitress thing. And we could play, um, what do you call it, trivia on it. So we played trivia on it, and we won every category we played. That was fun. And um, so we're sitting there doing this, and I'm thinking, well, I don't really need this waitress to be a waitress at all. All I need is a food runner which we also had. See, the waitress didn't bring us our food. She did not, I don't believe she actually brought us her drinks. She did bring us our check, but all she brought us was a receipt for the check because the console let me say I'm done, close my check, add a tip for her, which I was like, why am I giving her, I gave her a good tip. Uh, and I would thought myself later, I'm doing this out of habit because she really hasn't done very much for us. Because it was all food runners that brought me my food. All she did was welcome me to the table. She did take my initial drink order, but she didn't bring that. When I wanted more drinks, I just put more drinks. She did take our order order, our regular food order, and put that in, which came out with something missing, by the way, um, which she had to go back and say, hey, where's their stuff? But the nice thing was I could pull up my order to add stuff to it and see that it was in there and I can't be lied to and told that you know you never ordered this. So my whole point in this is why did I need her? Why do I need the host to tell me that my table's available? Why can't I go and number in your party, seating preference, here's your number, and the computer goes, section 5, now available for Joe Blow, or number 17950, whatever, okay? 
And it shows me on a little thing on a screen. There's where your table. Oh, there's my table. I'll go over there and sit down. You know, and the table's got a number on it, so I know it's right. I sit down, and that screen's there that was already there. And we just like start scrolling through the menu. Oh, we want that. I want that. I want this. I want that. Yeah, boom. And then all I need is somebody to bring me the food. And, and so then that eliminates the wait staff, which is your biggest pain in the ass in running a restaurant. I'm not saying that good waiters aren't worth good money because they are. And they make good, good waiters make good money. But as a person running a, a restaurant, you're the person that's a problem for me. Because you're the person I actually depend on. If you're a waiter or a bartender, you're the person when you call in sick, it's hard for me to replace you that night. But if all you do is run food, I can get anybody and go, hey, grab this and take that out there. So even if I don't go to a completely staffless restaurant, I can take out the whole server component. I can still trick people into tipping, right? I get, I mean, so it's elimination of jobs. And I'm telling you, it's going to go beyond that. There'll be an app for that. Hey, where do you think we should go eat today? Chili's. Okay, yeah. Hey, there's one right here. Hey, look, here's the menu on our iPhone. Do, 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 do. Time you expect to arrive. Uh, where are we at? Oh, we'll be there about 6.30. Your table will be rating. Your food will be pre-ordered. And that's great from a convenience standpoint, but how many jobs does it eliminate? So this whole thing about automation being a great thing for our economy, it's a great thing for our lifestyle. It's not a great thing for our economy. Now, you have to temper that with things like, okay, this is what people said about elevators. Because it used to have a, here's a job being an elevator operator. Some of you are too young. You never even probably studied this in school. But it used to be when you went to a building that you were not intelligent enough to operate an elevator properly. And there was a guy that stood there in a nice little suit with a little hat, kind of like a bellhop-looking guy or like a doorman guy, kind of dressed like that in a little uniform. What floor, please? And he would turn some keys and push some buttons, and you would go to floor 18, and he'd let you off. And there were certain things about elevators in the beginning that if you did them wrong, you could cause problems. It wasn't hard. It wasn't like you needed a freaking elevator operator degree from, you know, DeVry University to be able to operate an elevator, but there were some, you know, a few specialized things you needed to know. Well, eventually they simplified the elevator. You got on and you hit the number you wanted and you went there, which you kind of wonder why they didn't do that in the first place. Well, when that original concept came up that where we're going to just make this easy, then people were like, oh, the economy's going to die, and it didn't die. I mean, but that was... Not really that big of an employment segment, was it? I mean, think about all the buildings big enough to have elevators. And especially at the time, another segment was a phone operator. So it used to be you picked up the phone and said, get me so-and-so in you know, this exchange. And the operator, and then they automated that. And the economy didn't crash. It, it got better. But when we actually now are moving to a point where we're eliminating large numbers of jobs in multiple segments. Because the elevator operator thing only affected elevator operators. And the phone operator thing only affected phone operators. But automating fast food, it only affects fast food workers. Think about that. Walmart was the one of the first companies to put in the automation to the standpoint of you ring up your own food. You ring up your own food. Well, let me tell you something about Walmart. Walmart's been experimenting with RFID technology for a very long time. And they've been making certain suppliers put RFID chips in their packaging for a very long time. 
I'm talking about 2004, 2005, 2006. The dream of Walmart is this. This is where they want to go with this technology, and they're working on it, and they'll probably be the first people to do it. You will load up your cart with groceries or stuff or whatever at Walmart. Your cart will scan everything as it goes in the cart. If you take something out of your cart, the cart will know you took it out and, re and deduct it. Right on the cart will be a screen. Every item you've stuck in the cart and how much you owe. And when they perfect the technology, you'll have a Walmart shopper card. And when you walk out the door with your card, it will charge you. There will probably be something at the end like a PIN number to prevent fraud. So I can't just steal your card, run to Walmart, haul ass, and you get the bill. So there will probably be a con confirm that you're ready to leave, enter your PIN number, processing transaction, transaction approved. Thank you for shopping at Walmart. It won't even be a cash register. And if you think about your experiences shopping at Walmart and other big box stores, the place you're probably least satisfied with your whole experience is a cash register. Well, that's a whole lot of jobs. And no, they're not going to take the cash register person and give them a job standing in the aisle like all the other people telling them where stuff is. Because you won't even need that. Because when you're sitting in your cart with your little screen and you want to know where something is and you can't find it, you'll type it into the screen and the screen will tell you where it is. It'll give you aisle, row number, bin number, quantity on hand in store. Why wouldn't they do it? It eliminates jobs. It prevents theft. Speeds up customer experiences. This is, this is, and it will create jobs. Somebody has to service, maintain, install that stuff. But every one person doing that, ten people that did something else won't have a job anymore. So the internet expansion. That's another, you know, concept that John says is going to kind of, you know, keep our economy going. And the internet expansion and more and more people understanding the internet is good for the economy and bad for the economy because it, in a way, is just an extension of automation. I'll explain what I mean to you. So, when I've had interviews with traditional media personnel. All right. And I talk to somebody on their staff. I'll find that they have an engineer, a program director, a marketing director. They'll have a staff of 10 to 12 people to run a modest-sized radio show. I mean, we're not talking Glenn Beck. Glenn Beck has a staff of, of several hundred, actually, and that's great. He's created all those jobs. But when I talk to the people that, you know, a radio DJ or somebody like that that has me on their show – they are always completely dumbfounded that I run this show with just me. Uh, that my wife does some things to help in the business. But when it comes to actually the mechanics of running the show, it is 100% me. And it has been since 2008. And I do my own research. I do my own publishing. Yes, I misspell things and put wrong punctuation in once in a while. And you know what? No one cares that really matters. If you care, you don't really matter that you care. You're still listening. You're still listening. That's all that really matters. So today, the Survival Podcast, and I haven't even looked at the numbers for a while, but the last time I ran the numbers, it was several months ago, and our daily downloads were around 90,000 listeners. Okay, most DJs that have these small staffs of employees that are on conventional radio in anything other than the big markets, you know, Dallas, Atlanta, what have you, these minor markets, 
100,000 and below metro areas. Total, you know, coverage. If every person in the whole area turned on their radio at the same time, there's maybe a million people. That DJ employing all those people doesn't reach as many people as I do. That's not bragging. That's what Internet does. That's what Internet does. It lets me eliminate the need for a staff, the need for startup capital, build a successful business, more successful than most of these minor market DJs will ever have, employing no one. So that's just one example of how Internet expansion continues to actually eliminate jobs. Now, the, there is one place where it actually sort of, kind of, creates a job. If I did not do this, this wasn't what I did for a living, understanding that I am not the typical person that's, that's made this part of my exit strategy. I was running companies before I did this, but in most instances, but I, was, I held a job in the company I ran. Right? Somebody else is actually doing that job. Actually, some, there's, there's, there's three people doing jobs I held in my last position. So I actually grew the economy by three jobs by leaving it, and only the Internet expansion would let me do that. So I was a net gain of two to the economy. I created two jobs by exiting the conventional economy. That is not normal. That is not normal. Usually it's going to be a one-for-one -one exchange. If you quit your job, they are probably not going to hire three people to do your job. They're just not. Right? And the only reason I held those many positions is because I had an ownership stake in multiple companies and a conglomerate company holding those. And when you do that, you do more than everybody else. In spite of what they say about the evil rich and how people that are business owners just live off everybody else's back, when you're building companies, you work harder and longer than anybody else in that company. So most people that use Internet expansion to create their own business are actually, when they leave the economy, going to be a net zero. Somebody else will take their job. If that job's still there. If that job's still there. And then when we start looking at what that Internet expansion allows for one person to build a segment in the economy that normally would need a dozen people, it's a job killer. Internet expansion is a job eliminator in the net. All these new jobs... But it, is, it, it takes away more than it creates. Immigration. Really? John, I, I, I have to say this is the one I totally disagree with on, uh, on with you, is immigration being good for our economy. Um, as you said, the majority of people coming to this country now in immigration are unskilled workers, the vast majority. And a lot of them that are already here are unskilled workers. And we're coming into a time when there's less and less opportunity for unskilled workers because automation will, will replace the unskilled worker first. With a caveat I'll talk about in a second. Okay? So automation starts to replace the unskilled worker before it, by and large, replaces the skilled worker. And, and what that means is when you keep adding unskilled workers to an economy where the unskilled job demand is in decline that you worsen the problem. Now, the other thing is, if I look at the top five states, and I'm going off the top of my head here, so I might get it wrong, but I, I pretty well stuck on this being right. The top five states for immigrants, especially unskilled immigrants, right now, for the total there and the total continuing to come there. And it's no surprise that, you know, 
Texas and California have a border with Mexico. They're definitely on the list. Illinois and New York are on the list. And the fifth one, New Jersey. I believe that's correct. You can check me if you want to. Now, let's examine the financial state of the states on the list. Texas has a strong, thriving, growing economy, fueled mostly by gas and oil, and a very pro-business climate. And the fact that we are actually having a much bigger immigration that no one's really talking about of companies fed up with the rest of the nation that are coming here because it's a better place to do business. If you want to do business in, in North America right now, you want to do business in Florida, Texas, Wyoming, South Dakota. Those are probably your four best places to do business in. And depending on what you want, one might be better. If you want tech employees, come to Texas. We have lots of them waiting for jobs. Hardworking, innovative people waiting for jobs. All right, so Texas is the, is the aberration there. Now, you look at the welfare rolls in the other states. You look at the unbalanced budgets in the other states. You look at the pension crisis in the other states. So now, <laughs> you have this massive swell of unskilled immigration in Illinois, California, New York, and New Jersey. Why? Why? Because what can happen is a small family of immigrants gets their hooks into Jersey or Illinois, and the family divides up into roles. And one person in the family, generally the mother, this is not against women, this is just what's happening, gets all the government programs that are not supposed to be available to illegal aliens, but are, because most of these immigrants are also here illegally. All right, So they get all the government goodies. And then since they're here illegally, even though they're married, they're, not, they're seen as single because they just say that they are. And then dad gets whatever job he can get. And that way, wherever it's easiest to get on, you know, the free medical insurance for the kids and food stamps and stuff like that is where the majority of them are going, especially if you can still find, just on sheer numbers of population, a place for another part of the family to work. So they're still taking jobs away from Americans, the ones that no American wants to do. Yeah, but you know when people have a choice of work or, or, or don't work and don't eat, then generally speaking, they're going to choose work. So at the same time, we've disempowered our own people by making government assistance available to just about anybody who just lays around long enough, sooner or later we'll get it. We also have an immigrant population that's become quite switched on on sucking off of it and still holding a job within a family unit. And if you think I'm putting them down, hey, at least they're holding a job. Might be able to learn something from that. So to me, immigration, you know, we're going to get all these smart people coming to America and building new businesses in America because it's the best place to build a business. Uh-uh. Everyday Americans are looking to other nations to move to, especially the Internet expansion entrepreneur. People are sitting here and they're going, okay, let me see, figure this out. Last year, I gave this government ah, $60,000 in total taxes. If I lived in Panama, I would have got off for about $10,000 in total taxes. Why am I here? Why am I here? If I put out certain information a certain way in this country, I could be accused of giving investment advice and put down for that or giving health care advice and, 
I could go to these other countries and they don't care because I'm not hurting anybody. So why am I here? My country continuously does not trust me to be a member of my own country and is spying on everything that I do. Why am I here? I'd like to open up a bank account in another country for whatever reason, because I want to. I can't do it, and I'm the only citizen of any country in the world that can't do it. Because no other country wants to deal with me. Because of the way my government's be, my country is constantly implementing new capital controls. I see the writing on the wall. They're going into more and more debt. The reason that one of the, I mean, the biggest reason that people build businesses in America isn't because we're land of free, home of the brave, and have the red, white, and blue stars and stripes. And don't say it's because you can, because there's entrepreneurs in almost every country in the world. It's because of stability. The reason you build a business in America is that you know no one's going to take it away from you. You know, you don't understand that? That's why people want to build businesses in America. You get to keep it. No one takes it away from you. And when, it, when a regime change happens, if you're on the enemy's list, you don't have your assets seized. Right? Or they con they, the country doesn't devalue its own currency to the point where the peasants uprise and, and smash your windows in. The stability of this country is as big a reason of any as to why people have built businesses in America. Well, what happens when you don't feel it's so stable anymore? And when you do feel that other nations that were not quite so stable are more stable, don't you think, you, here's the reality. Money goes where it's treated well. You should write that down right now if you've never heard it before. Money goes where it's treated well. Money in this country is not treated well anymore. Now you say, Jack, the richest people in this country have it made. They're treated very well. No, they're treated well by their staffs and all the things they can buy with their money. Their money itself is not treated well. And you're also moving into the uber elites. You know, like the people that own things like Berkshire Hathaway and Apple and General Electric, where those companies pay zero taxes. And you wonder how, but they do. Okay? Because it's part of the scam. But when you look at the guy that kills himself and builds a three or four or ten million dollar company, I'm talking annual revenues here, money's not treated well in this country. He's taxed higher than he would be just about anywhere in the world other than Western Europe. Where Costa Rica rolls out a program, if you'll just spend a half a million dollars on a house down there, a six-month track of citizenship, and after that, your income for the first half a million dollars isn't even subject to income tax. So I think you're going to see a lot of immigration that would have come here going to other places. And as the Internet automation makes the ability... Because the other thing about America is we speak English. Right? So the biggest markets in the world are the United States, Canada, England, Australia. I mean, they're South Africa. It's a small country, smaller number. But reality is if you want to hit wealthy people, and when I say wealthy, I'm not middle class wealthy, you want to sell to the English-speaking crowd. And English is such a universal language that in many other well-to-do nations, where English isn't the official language, people still speak English. So as long as you have an English workforce, you have an immediate advantage to doing business in these major English-speaking markets and in these markets where English is a second language for most of its people, like Switzerland. You go to Switzerland, finding somebody that speaks English is not hard. So the Internet expansion enables you to get people speaking very clear English very quickly in other countries. Rosetta Stone works the other way around, just so you know. And 
we all have the stereotypical uh, Indian tech support person in our head. That's not because they don't speak English well. It's because they're not very good at what they do yet. They're getting better. They're getting better all the time. But that's a low-level worker in that country. Trust me. You go deal with high-level workers in India or China that speak English, they might have an accent, they might speak with a little bit of a, a discerning dialect where you might go, that's their person's not from around here, but you don't have any trouble understanding them and they don't have any trouble understanding you. So to me, immigration has a lot of things going on and not all of them are going to help this country. As for a resurgence of U.S. manufacturing, I have to ask why. Why? Why would I manufacture in America today? For what reason? For what advantage? And the only one I can think of is large goods like cars, and that only works if I'm non-union. So that's why Toyota is designing, building, and manufacturing cars in America today, even though they're a Japanese company. Now, a lot of the parts are made in Japan. They ship the parts over and they do the assembly and everything here because it costs less for them to do business that way because UAW is not involved. And you can't build a whole economy on automobiles. By the way, while our bridges and our streets are crumbling across the nation and there's no money left to fix the things that are going wrong because the cost of labor today is so exponentially higher than the cost of labor when most of this stuff was put in in the 50s and 60s, that we actually can't afford to fix what we built 40 years ago now. So when I look at all of this, I don't see a rosy picture for the economy. And I see a lot of the things that are good for people that know how to use them, bad for the totality of the economy as a whole. Then there's a lot of things going on out there that people are reporting disingenuously and incorrectly. I got an email from someone who's clarified since it's not exactly what he meant, but it doesn't really matter because it's what's being reported. Do you know that Russia no, doesn't owe anybody any money anymore? They don't. They owe no one nothing. They paid off all their debts and threw out the World Bank. Well, first of all, they didn't throw out the World Bank. We're just going to put that on the shelf and not worry about it. We're just going to ignore the World Bank thing because that's being reported too. But um, Russia paid off all its debt and doesn't owe anybody any money anymore. Um, no. <laughs> No. What Russia did finally was paid off all the legacy debt from the Union of Soviet Socialist Republic. You see, when the Soviet Union broke up and fell apart, a lot of the debt that was incurred was incurred by nations who said goodbye, like the Ukraine and Georgia. Nations like this, you know, they incurred some of the debt. Is like local districts or like our states think of it, like provinces in Canada. And then they went, yeah, but that's not our debt anymore, goodbye. And then Russia was left holding a lot, not all of the bags. Some of these nations carried some debt out of the deal that came out of it, but a lot of it got shoved over to Mother Russia. I'm not saying it should have, I'm just saying it did. So Russia was like, well, we can't come up with all this money. Um, and our, if you haven't noticed, our whole country fell apart. We have this piece of it left, and uh, we're kind of screwed. So the nations that they principally owed are part of what's called the Paris Club. Now, these nations are the primary creditor nations of the world. These are the nations that loan a lot of money. And there was a deal struck where the USSR strung out its debt payments, 
And so we will be full back up on all of these legacy payments by the year 2020. And what Russia just did was pay off all of that debt. They still owe about $700 billion in total debt. $700 billion. Now, to put that in perspective, this country runs trillion-dollar deficits. Right, so we... We go in debt more every single year than Russia owes in total. Get that through your head. I want you to think about that. I want you to really think about it. We, the United States of America, go deeper in debt in deficit in one year than all the money that Russia owes. And do you know what our United States national debt is today? $17.5 trillion. And no, you don't get to blame Obama for all of it. You really don't. You get to blame your whole government and your whole group of people, especially since the year 1913 right up till today. That's, that's what you get to, 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 to blame. Because the whole reason, and, and, and those of you that think, well, we should just stop this, and the, the whole reason the economy hasn't fallen apart yet is because they've been willing to keep that number going up. Right now, we're so screwed that if we said we're not going to borrow any money, this country would have a depression that would have made the Great Depression look like freaking the 1990 Internet boom in comparison. It would, like, the Great Depression would have been that good compared to what we would have. If we just said, right now, we're going to a balanced budget amendment, we will not spend a dime that we don't have ever again from this day forward, and went off cold turkey, this country's economic future would crumble in an instant. But that's not what the Republicans say. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Balanced budget amendment, my ass. And even their balanced budget proposals don't actually balance the budget. They only balance discretionary spending. Everybody knows it's a suicide. Everybody knows this can't be done. And everybody knows the only way you create debt, create money in this country is through the issuance of debt. So if you stop having debt, you stop having new money, you stop the expansion of the, 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 the currency supply. And under our current paradigm, you cease all economic growth. Do you get that? So understand that in this climate of fear, there's some real stupid things going on out there. And that's, you know, Russia owes no one nothing. No, that's in Paul Wheaton's words. No, that's just marketing. The next big story going on right now, the whole world is going to fall apart on August 14th. It is. And you better buy silver now, because if you do, you'll be a millionaire. And if you don't buy silver right now, you're going to be penniless, because the silver price fix is dead. Right? They're going to stop fixing the silver price. It's the end. One prominent blogger recently wrote that. The end of silver manipulation. Well, it's not the end of silver price manipulation. And, and the London exchange that's done the silver price fix for all these years only has so much of an impact on the price of silver. Because in the end, when you walk into a store, if they're like, well, we're really in short supply right now, we don't want to sell any for what London says to sell it for, and you go, I'll pay you more for it, they're going to sell it to you. There is a street price of silver and there's a paper price. And the street price is higher than the paper price, and it always has been and it always will be. But here's the big news. Well, here's the deal. Um, earlier this year, the London silver market uh, fixing exchange said it will stop administering the London silver fix at the end of the day on August 14, 2014. This has been going on for 110 years. This, this group of banks gets together 
and they say, how much is the final price of silver going to be today? And they base it on a lot of information, including what they're willing to pay as they exchange between each other and the information from all over the world. And this, again, has been going on a long time, but regulators, as all this agitation has been uh, drummed up, have started to issue suits for information and things, and basically saying, we think you guys are, are manipulating the price of silver. And Deutsche Bank basically is like, well, I don't really want to do this anymore. It's just not worth our time. Like this is, It used to be a big prestigious thing for a bank. We're part of the London Silver Fixed Exchange. Oh, okay, well, you know, jolly good old mate, that type of thing, right? It was a big deal, and like it doesn't really matter anymore. So the conspiracy theorists have always said it's these guys, these guys through Comex, which is the paper exchange of silver where the money never actually, the silver never actually is taking physical delivery. These guys are holding the price down. These guys are holding the price down, and if we could just get rid of them, then we would see silver be worth like three hundred dollars an ounce or something. Okay. All right. Sure. So the people involved in a 110-year conspiracy of manipulating silver to control its price have all decided it's not worth their time anymore and they're going to walk away. And it's going to be the end and doom and gloom for the economy and rising silver prices and yoo-hoo and you're going to be rich if you go all in now. That's how this is being reported. This is the danger fear climate that's going on now. Well, let's, let's, let's give this. And I'll put a great link to Silver Investing News Dot com where they actually give the story. I don't know what their overall take is on it, but this write-up is good. It really explains what's going on. You can read it in depth if you want to. But let's just give it the bullshit test and see if this matches what the people trying to sell you on, fear on it are, are saying. So the conspiracy theory has always been this group of really elite banker types have been controlling the silver market and manipulating it for a long time. And now they're not going to anymore. But the reason they're not going to anymore, to sum it up, is they all got bored and decided to quit. Well, maybe they're doing it so silver will go up really high. Well, if you wanted to actually manipulate the price, whether you wanted to stay the same, go up or go down, you wouldn't give up your ability to control it. So they're all getting bored, they're all walking away. And there are several proposals about what to do about this. Like, who will be the new body to make this? And there's already numbers coming out of New York, and they're already being reported on at end-of-day trading, and they're already being looked at, and they're already very similar. And the whole upshot of this is very little is going to come out of this. So as you're, as you're, as you're navigating the waters of this, this fear-based climate, of all these things that are wrong, be wary of things like this. And stay more focused on what's going to happen here in our economy with things like automation. Let me let me swing back to, to real things that are really happening. And you'll even hear a restaurant that I mentioned's name come up. And I didn't know that when I found this article initially, that it would, it would gel so well with what I've been talking about today. Uh, this is on uh, cbc.ca, uh, which is CBC News. And um, it's called... Robots could soon replace fast food workers, study says. And this is posted May 28, 2014, so it's very recent. Are robots the future of fast food service? Panera Bread has announced plans to replace its cashiers with self-serve kiosks by 2016. It's a pretty good size of little operation. Applebee's and Chili's already allowed diners to bypass wait staff by placing orders on tablets. 
and one San Francisco-based robotics company plans on changing the game completely with an industrial speed machine that churns out more than 360 hamburgers per minute. It all may sound a bit Jetsonian, but University of Oxford researchers predicted last year that there are is a 92% chance that both fast food preparation and fast food service becoming automated in the coming decades. So what does this mean for those making a living in the fast food industry? Quote, as protesters across the country call for the fast food chains to raise their wages, a number of companies have begun experimenting with new technology that could significantly reduce the number of restaurant workers in years to come, wrote CNN's James O'Toole in a recent article called Robots Will Replace Fast Food Workers. Quote, with artificial intelligence technology like IBM's Watson platform making strides in advanced reasoning and language understanding, he continues, it's not hard to see how robots could be designed to provide more sophisticated interaction with restaurant customers customers than kiosks can manage. End quote. Earlier this month, thousands of fast food workers held demonstrations across the United States. That's not what really happened, by the way. I've got some pictures I have to find for you guys. I really do. Like where they show like this, it looks like this huge mob of fast food protesters behind the reporter. The reporter's like, oh, there's a lot of angry people out here and blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. And, and then you see the picture from the way you see it on TV. And it looks like this huge crowd. And then you see the other picture, and what it is is there's a couple hundred people, maybe, maybe there. And they funneled them into a narrow rectangle facing onto the camera. And it's not even a couple hundred. It's more like, you know, three or four dozen people, tightly packed together with signs in a little square. And then they crop the image in so that you don't see to the left and right of the, the crowd, if you want to call it that. And it looks like a massive crowd, and it's 40 or 50 people. Most of them are professional uh, protesters being paid by the unions. A lot of them are homeless people that never held a job in their life. So just, just to say that. Back to the article. Earlier this month, thousands of fast food workers held demonstrations across the United States protesting against low wages in front of McDonald's, KFCs, and donut shops. Some organizations like American think that the Employment Policies Institute, oh, really? That's a thing? That's a real thing. Some organizations like American Think Tank, the Employment Policies Institute, okay, warned that an increase in fast food worker wages could actually expedite the process of automation as employers look to robotics to save money for money saving solutions. You think? The group took out a following ad in the Wall Street Journal last year to get its point across. Uh, and it's a picture of a robot making some eggs and said why, why robots could soon replace fast food workers demanding a higher minimum wage, uh, minimumwage.com. Others, however, are critical of the idea that robots could ever replace humans when it comes to hospitality jobs, not for very long anyway. Quote, if you look at the thousands of years the consumers have been served alcohol and food by people, it's hard to imagine that things will change that quickly, said Darren Tristano, uh, a food industry expert with the research firm Technomic to CNN. Tristano believes that technology will increase efficiency and create labor savings for restaurants in the future, but slowly and over time, he predicts the workforce will only drop by 5 or 10 percent due to automation in the decades to come. This guy's nuts. Hundreds of Reddit, uh, hundreds on Reddit have waited on the University of Oxford prediction on Panera Bread forthcoming automation plan, with many sharing their own experiences of fast food work and being served by robots in other countries. Others contend that wage protests or not, restaurant automation will become more common regardless. So this, this is starting to hit the mainstream, and when this stuff hits the mainstream, it's already happening. Like they're, they're two years behind everything, guys. If you know nothing about mainstream news, learn that. When they start telling you something's up, 
it was up two years ago, and it's already morphed. This is this is already taking off. This is already being planned. It's already happening in more and more places. And fast food's just an easy one. And I'll tell you what, why it's happening here first. Because if you'll accept it there, you'll accept it anywhere. It's actually completely logical that we would do things this way in 2014. That if I wanted a Big Mac and fries, that I don't need to have some person that is functioning at an IQ of 67 at a cash register holding up everybody when all I want to do is get a Big Mac and fries. That I don't, that, that there's no reason for that person to actually be there in 2014. That if I know what I want, I should be able to push a couple buttons and it should just come out. Like a vending machine. There, there's absolutely no reason for that person to be there from a technology standpoint. Okay? But where the guy is right was that we expect this now. Did this? Well, I want to go and see a person that can tell me and answer my questions and all. What's on the Big Mac? Hit a button, it'll tell you what's on the Big Mac. There's two places this is going to go down first, and it's already fully implemented, but they haven't got it set up to work right. And that's the airlines, right? There's too many problems with airlines, Right, your flight's delayed. You're on a terror watch list because your government's freaking insane. Um, you want an upgrade? The thing won't let you do the upgrade, even though it says the upgrade's available. There's a lot of technology hitches at the airlines, but they did it first because they thrive on efficiency, and they're getting better. And pretty much now, when you go to check in at a kiosk at the airport, if you slide your credit card, it pulls up your flight information accurately, and you can go through it. There's also a learning curve for the public. Because you can see the people in the airport that have never done this before for themselves. And older people that are not comfortable with technology, and they still have a booth for them. But the public's becoming more and more educated to people are actually moving through faster. Now, this is starting to happen in retail establishments like Walmart and, and what have you. Go in, you can stand in line and wait for Debbie Doolittle to, to look at everything the person in front of you bought and talk to them about it and finally run it across the scanner and try to figure out how to pack it or you can whip your own shit across the scanner and pay for yourself. And generally, the only time I anymore wait for Debbie is when I'm dealing with, I look at the person that's overseeing, okay, the self-checkout. And if I have something in there like alcohol that's going to require approval, and that person looks like they're not quite all home, I'll go ahead and stand in line. Otherwise, I go do it myself. Or if I have a ton of crap, okay, a ton of crap, and I know that like certain things are going to fit the bag, and it's going to be don't bag this item, and I'm have to deal with somebody, then I'll then I'll wait in line. Otherwise, I'll go to the self checkout if there's a self checkout in any store. Okay, it's faster and it's better. As they solve the technology hurdles and as people learn to do it for themselves, because that's the other thing I look at, right? Self-checkout's great unless every station is full and the person doing their self-checkout, all four or six of them look like they're trying to solve a calculus problem. Like they've never seen this. Like you know the look I'm talking about. The person that's there like, and they just have this contorted look on their face as though they've just been told they have a rabbit growing out of their ass or something. Like if you see four people like that checking out and you have to wait in line to get one of their spots, then you might want to go deal with Debbie. She's probably more competent than they are, right? So it's happening there. But the fast food place is the place where it actually makes more sense. Fast food orders are remarkably simplistic. 
The, the person in the cash register is not even entering information. They're pushing pictures. They just push a picture. No cheese. It's just a piece of cheese with a slot, with a, you know, no, like a Ghostbuster symbol going across it to go or in house, right? So this actually is very, very simple. It's very, very intuitive. It's been designed that way already. So as soon as you will accept that when you walk into McDonald's or Burger King or I don't know, Taco Cabana, Taco Bueno, whatever, that you're just going to walk up to a cash register and push some numbers and food's going to come out. As soon as you accept that, everybody will do it. And as soon as it's done there, it'll create a learning curve throughout society because so many people buy stuff like that to where it'll become more and more advantageous for companies to offer it everywhere. And then you add to it the fact that Retail's dying. Okay, so retail in of itself is is pretty much a dying game right now. And on that note, let's look at another story today that came in from one of you guys. This is on Forbes, and it's somewhat optimistic. The death of retail, and perhaps a resurrection. Um, in the business world, we often speak of disruption. Traditional business is being shaken to their course by factors like technology, being forced to rethink their business approaches and products. Perhaps this is nowhere truer than the retail industry. More precisely, brick-and-mortar retail. While business prognosticators have been saying retail is dead for years, with no true apocalypse to fulfill their claims, they might be on the brink of vindication. <clears throat> Sometimes I don't like being vindicated, folks. I don't want to be vindicated about this, but I'm going to be. After earnings dropped by 19%, Radio Shack, which has one of the largest footprints of any American retailer with more than 5,200 stores in the U.S., announced it will close up to 1,100 stores. Now, the people, the geek people out there will say, well, I wouldn't go to Radio Shack anyway. They're like my dad's tech store. So that's their problem, really. Well, Staples will close 225 of its 1,846 stores in North America by the end of 2015 after similar turmoil. I can't believe it hasn't happened sooner. I've been walking into deserted Staples stores for a long time going, how long can this last? Best Buy plans to close 100 of its 1,100 locations, and many analysts project that Sears, once the paragon of retailing success and the nation's largest retailer, will close one quarter of its American stores in the next few years. And it appears to only be the tip of the iceberg. Consumer perceptions on traditional retail are declining as well. According to Millard Brown Optimator's Brand Z Top 100 Most Valuable Global Brands, only five of the top 100 most valuable brands in the world are from the traditional retail sector. Listen to this. Let me say that again. Of the top 100 most valuable global brands, only five of the top 100 are from the traditional retail sector today. And the majority of them are falling in the rankings. What is happening to take down these common household names and the titans in the business world? The obvious answer is online shopping. After all, the lean operating models of online retailers make large, comfortable retail stores look wasteful, impractical, and even indulgent. According to a recent article in Forbes, there are 46 square feet of retail space for every American. 46 square feet per American of retail space. <laughs> If we were all in retail space right now, We'd all have 46 square feet to ourselves. 
Indeed, shoppers are looking to convenience. Shopping at 2 a.m. from yourself in your pajamas. Selection, 42,465 results found. And price advantages, comparing prices with one click, and they're moving online. Online shopping broke all records last holiday season, overwhelming even UPS and DHL. So I guess you can get a job at one of those two places, at least seasonally. Huh? However, the true answer may lie in something deeper, perhaps a shift in expectations on the part of the shopper. True shoppers, the others true shoppers, apparently there are. Coincidentally, the ones that spend the most money know that shopping is not really about the transaction. But you know that. Shopping isn't about buying stuff. They're talking about women here, I think, right? It's a, it is actually about the experience and the process. You know, I've never felt that way. I hate shopping. I know a lot of you people like it, but I hate it. I always have. They're, they are the ones that revel in the discovery, the creation and imagination, the act of shopping, the act of shopping sparks, the act That the act of shopping spark. Oh, okay, I got it now. This is weird for me. I don't understand this mentality. They are the ones that revel in the discovery, the creation, the imagination that the act of shopping sparks. Who are these people? Are they Kardashians or what? The transaction itself is secondary and can easily, maybe preferably, be done online. Hence what retailers are calling the phenomenon of showrooming. What consumers do when they visit stores, try things on, look around and pick their top choice items, but go online to make the purchase. Retailers who understand this, the ones that understand the power of shopping experience, are actually thriving by leveraging their understanding of what consumers want. Letting go of the notion that the store is the mechanism to deliver goods from buyer to seller allows great brands to use the physical space to create a journey into the brand's universe. Who are these people? To have a journey into the universe of who they're buying from. We've heard plenty about Apple stores, but they were revolutionary in recognizing the shifting role of brick and mortar stores. The stores were a space for consumers, many PC customers at that, to interact with the brand, dedicating an entire wall of high street emporium to a free service in the Genius Bar was seemingly inefficient and overly costly but revolutionized the way that Apple brand engaged with its customers. Regardless of whether you bought an Apple product there somewhere else or not at all, you are welcome. Okay, hold on, because I'm going to stop reading this now, and you can read the rest of it if you want to, because it's a pretty long article. But they've just, in their own rebuttal, explained the only way you can make this work today. Okay, The reason that Apple could do that is that Apple profits from every product that Apple manufacturers being sold, no matter where it's or how it's sold. The reason Apple doesn't care, if you go in and talk to their genius, which I think really devalues the word genius, by the way. Um, I wonder if anybody in the comments section can tell me today who said, who said that on TV. Um, but it devalues the word genius by a large degree uh, to call these people geniuses. They're smart people. They know their product, but they're not freaking geniuses. But they don't care that you go in and talk to Tom at the Apple Genius Bar for two hours and waste Tom's time because Tom's, uh, you know, an hourly employee that doesn't make that much money in the first place. And as far as like this, this, you know, high end, all this equipment that's there, it's not really that much stuff because it's, you know, you don't, you don't take it with you when you leave. They're not holding a bunch of inventory in that little Genius Bar for you to play with. There's a couple iMacs and some iPads and, you know, some stuff like that. So you go and you diddly around with it and they don't care if you go and buy it online line from a retailer, you go to apple.com and buy it because it's their product and you can't get it, it's proprietary to them. So they don't care. But if you go to Barnes and Nobles 
and buy a coffee and kick back in a chair and read a book, a little bit of this book and a little bit of that book, kind of like you're at a library and check out four or five different books and go, well, this is one I actually want to own. And then you think to yourself, wonder if that's on Kindle. And you pull out your iPhone and you go to the Kindle store and you type the title in and it's there. And the book you're holding in your hand is $24.95 and on the Kindle it's $9.95. And all I got to do is click buy with one click and I have the book on my phone. Then nine times out of ten I'm going to put that book on the shelf. And unlike Apple who would have profited had I gone online and bought their iPad from Walmart... Barnes and Noble just lost, and hence bookstore after bookstore after bookstore as part of the death of retail is closing in America. So again, what I've I've kind of challenged you guys to think about is what are we going to do with all these people? What do we do with them? How do we put them back to work? We're talking millions of people, jobs eliminated, and well, and saying stuff like, well, you know, if we're automating things, that'll create jobs and automation. The person that's 32 that's working on the line at McDonald's, not as an assistant manager or anything like that. Like they're, they're struggling with remembering to say, do you want fries with that? That person is not going to have a job repairing, building, innovating, implementing automated systems. They're never going to intellectually come up to the ability to do that job. So where do they go? What do they do? It used to be at least if you would work hard, you could find a job digging ditches or something like that. Illegal immigrants take most of that work, and frankly, there's less of it today. Even if the illegal illegal immigrant wasn't there. Plus, we've bred, bred a, 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 a false elitism into Americans where we think we're above that work. What are all these people going to do? Where are they going to go? Oh, and if you think we're far away from another recession... Right now, we're one bad quarter away from an official recession. If you have two quarters of negative growth, you're officially in a recession. Um, and exactly where are we with that right now? Well, we just had one, except the people that run your country are lying to you two about it by the skin of their teeth and saying it wasn't really uh, a quarter that was down. Let me read this to you. Of course, it's being reported by the BBC, not North, you know, not not American media, right? Because You know, then they would have to actually look at the job that our government's doing during an election cycle with a, you know, a population that's kind of grumpy and upset with an incumbent Democratic president, right? You wouldn't want that. So we have to, you know, not talk about stuff like this. Here we go, though. U.S. economy contracted in the first quarter of 2014. The U.S. economy shifted into reverse in the first three months of 2014, shrinking by an annualized rate of 1%. Official estimates have shown it is the worst economic performance since the first quarter of 2011. It is also a big fall on the 2.6 rise in economic output of the final quarter of last year. The U.S. Commerce Department, first reading a gross domestic product, showed the economy grew at an annualized rate of 0.1%. The fall in output was blamed on an unusually cold and disruptive winter. That's why it was cold out. Uh, one of the coldest in the U.S. for 20 years, but and a plunge in business investment. Ec economists have estimate, uh, estimated that the weather could have cost up to 1.5 percentage points of GDP. Oh, it's the economy. Hey, economists, here's what I have a, a question for you guys. What about all the crap you put in GDP that doesn't belong there? And it still didn't help. Do you know now that when your company makes a promise to you this year, 
of what your pension will be worth 25 years from now, it goes in this year's GDP? Yep, they really did that. And the economy still dropped by 1%, and somehow they finagled the numbers and say, well, it wasn't good, but it, only, it, it, it was up by a tenth of a percent. So the official number versus the third-party number, the official number is being lied about by nine-tenths of a percent because you can't say that we've had a, a, a quarter of, of, of downtrend because, God forbid, if the second quarter's numbers come out and they're down right before an election, we will officially go into a recession. Folks, we're sitting in one. And they have a picture of snow and, like, look, you see, it was all the winter. It's not the winter. Think about the fourth quarter. Where does a lot of money in the fourth quarter come from? It comes from spending on what? Stuff that we buy people, gifts. And what we don't understand about GDP is GDP is, is, is very cyclical, meaning that a dollar can account for many dollars in the gross domestic product. It's, it, it just doesn't have one mission that it does. So if I give you a dollar in some sort of transaction, it, it goes to the GDP plus one. And then if you take it somewhere else and do something else with it, it goes to another place plus two. And then if that person does something with a plus three, he gets to do it all the way up until New Year's Eve, January, uh, or actually December 31st, midnight, when the ball drops for the fourth time for the people watching in California. Technically, I guess, Hawaii would be several hours later, but you get how that works, right? So right up to that point, and then we call it off, and that's done for this year. And you know, if it got in at the beginning of the, the fourth quarter, it goes in that fourth quarter number. And that's when everybody's buying Christmas presents, right? Okay, so think about what we just talked about with retail. And if retailers, online and offline, sell just as much or more stuff, but more of it goes through online than offline than in the past, the whole GDP contribution of the retail segment goes down. Because I didn't give a guy a paycheck to sit behind a cash register and make you wait too long to check out. So he didn't get the dollar and he didn't spend it because he was at home not working because his job was eliminated or he never got hired in the first place because the hiring requirements were lower than expected. So I think that's a big part of why the numbers were off for the fourth quarter. It's not that it was, it was cold out. You know what? Because you can go to Amazon.com when the roads are closed, can't you? And somehow all that stuff still showed up. It did show up late. Stuff we ordered around Thanksgiving showed up like three weeks late even for Amazon. But it showed up, and they took our money. So that didn't slow anything down. So what the hell is going to happen? Is John right? Am I right? I think we're both right. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen in the next two years. I think I know what's going to happen in the next ten. A complete reconstruction of what we think of as normal in the economy. A continued degrading of what it means to even be middle class. Downward class migration, as I call it. That a middle class person's quality of life is continuing to erode and will continue to do so for the next two decades. There will be incredible opportunities for people. There will be incredible success stories in our economies. And there will be a lot of misery for a lot of people. And sooner or later, this all has to be reckoned out. Sooner or later we have to deal with the problem that we've created. Sooner or later, that $17 trillion worth of U.S. debt actually has to be looked at and thought about and come to roost. And there's, there's, a, there's the one big thing here that all of these people 
And John talked about population growth. People not being born, people that have been born not getting good jobs, and the baby boomers. This is the biggest potential catastrophe for us economically in the next 10 to 20 years. Is this population becomes, of aging Americans becomes larger and larger and larger. And the number of people supporting them becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. And the amount of money earned per capita per supporter of the elderly becoming smaller. Then what? Then what? What happens when we have pension funds insolvent at the state and local governmental levels? And that will be where it'll be first, because Social Security, they can print money for that. But what happens when the value of Social Security is decreased massively? For people who are still getting their checks, $1,800, $1,600, bucks, whatever it is, they'll get a check. It'll come. It won't be a check anymore. You see a deposit into the bank account. It'll be, you know, some RFID card, RFID Social Security card that'll double as your, uh, your spending card or some crap like that they'll do. Don't think they won't do that. They're going to. That's how they'll do a national ID card. <laughs> your benefits will be part of your Social Security card itself eventually. Yeah, I said it. They'll do it. Again, think about where all the immigration's still going. Four of the five states are just financially at the edge of survival. New Jersey, New York, Illinois, and California. And Texas, you know what? I love Texas, but we have problems too. You know, the, 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 the city of Fort Worth is a hair's breadth away at any given time from financial bankruptcy with its pension obligations. And, 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 and Texas and North Texas is doing better than most. So what kind of problems are there out there we don't even know about yet? We have so much money owed by municipalities that are beginning to fall apart. Chicago, Chicago is about to go over the edge with its unfundable obligations to its retirement. Sooner or later, we have to deal with it all. And the only thing that keeps this economy running is there's enough confidence created by the con artists in the system, the confidence men in the system, that they can keep running it on fumes, and you'll keep paying the bill to put a little bit more gas in, a little bit more gas in, a little bit more gas in. But sooner or later, that system has to break. And I don't believe when it breaks that it'll all just go away and it'll turn into Mad Max. I, I've never taught that, ever. I do think you'll see cities burn. I think you'll see riots. I think you'll see some of the most abusive forms of uh, excessive rule of law you've ever seen in your life. I think we're heading into a very dark area with, with the NSA oversight. There's dossiers basically being built on every American to where if you're a problem during a catastrophe like this, they can just, like... Find a reason to uh, to make you go away or to destroy you. If they don't want to make you go away, they'll just destroy you. We, we have a really interesting world that we live in. And in some ways we should be afraid of it. In some ways we should feel very, very lucky about it. Because we do get to do something about this. You see, the, there, there's some things going on that people don't really understand. And it's where John's optimism comes from. And it's why I share some of it. The entrepreneur in the world, the whole world, has always had to compete with two things were their biggest competition. Now, the entrepreneur 
is not the people that own a hundred-year-old company that are part of the global elite system and part of the plutocracy. Okay, the entrepreneur is the person that builds a company, that actually builds a company on their own and makes it into something meaningful and develops segments of markets. And there are two things that have always been at odds with the entrepreneur. The first is something that all of you are probably thinking in your head right now. It is government. Government is the antithesis, the antithesis of entrepreneurship. Government is everything that entrepreneurship isn't. Government is not innovative. Government is not efficient. Government does not reward hard work. Government does not believe that those who work hard deserve more than those who do not. Government does not believe that the people who are smarter deserve to profit from their innovation more than the people who are less intelligent. Government believes that everybody should be equal up to a point, and then there's only so much room for exceptionalism, and that they should get to pick and choose how much exceptionalism each person is entitled to have, no matter how good they are at what they do. Unless they're so good or so useful to government that they can be brought into the club and then they can be extravagant. And if they're useful either for practical purposes or they're useful idiots, like celebrities they can trot around, either way is fine as long as they get control. Okay? So this is clearly at odds with the person that says, I want to start a new company and build it from the ground up and employ 150 people. Okay? That's the easy one to understand. But entrepreneurs have been remarkably good at beating that opponent because the reward in the end comes from the market. And government can try to interfere with and control and dominate and fix prices and whatever they want to do, but in the end, the market always tells us the truth. So the person that builds the best operating system does win in the end. And maybe there's enough room for two or three. And maybe there's enough room for ten. And maybe the one that's a failure in the minds of many still makes somebody a shitload of money. So that works, and you can beat that. There's another thing that has always been at war with the entrepreneur. And it's something that it's very counterintuitive, and it's the most important thing I'm going to tell you today, especially if you're my age or older and you're an entrepreneur. It's technology. It's innovation. It's a new way to do things. It is the future. The future has always been at war with the somewhat to very successful entrepreneur. This is why smart entrepreneurs build companies and end up bringing in young people to run them for them. Because this is the truth. By the time you hit 40, you become very set in the way that you want to do things and the way that things are done. And by the time you're 50... You're really set. And at 60, you're not even interested in what is different. You don't want to be bothered. And we have CEOs running major companies today that are 70, 75, 80 years old. They're not innovative. There's an exception to the rule. I'm sure somebody will give me somebody and say, I'm against old people. I'm not. I'm, not. I'm talking about myself included here. As you become successful in the world of business and comfortable, you're not willing to be edgy anymore. You're not willing to adapt and innovate and overcome anymore. You're Especially if you look at a forecast of your life and say, I'll never really recapture 
being that success I was at 29 and being on the cover of a magazine or even the local paper or whatever with you know being this you know, you know innovator and I'll never have the growth like I did in my first 10 years ever again I'll I'll have growth of like 2 or 3% versus 30 or 40 or 50 or 100% right I'll just but but I'm going to live a really good life until I retire and my retirement set and then what do you do well hey I'm going to coast Even people that think they're not coasting, they coast. And that works as long as that next generation is ready to come take what you got. Because as long as they are, you'll only coast so much and you will still innovate and you will still move forward. And when you fail, they won't. They will take over and they will innovate and they will go to what's next. The problem we have now is we've literally conditioned out that mentality in the younger generation. Now, I know there are still exceptional young people. I've talked to them. I'm impressed with them. But there's less of them. And in the next wave, the kids that are 12 today, that will be the 22-year-olds in 10 years. The kids that are 14 today, that will be the 24-year-olds in, in 10 years. These kids have actually been taught that it's wrong to think that way. It's wrong to think about how you can be better than someone else. It's okay to think about bettering yourself, but it's wrong to think about being better than someone else. That winning is wrong. Winning is evil. Winning is the devaluation of others. These are kids who grew up playing soccer without keeping score. They grew up playing basketball without keeping score. My generation was a generation of kids that we went out and we played sports without parents worrying about us. We played games like Tackle Loco, which is like one man against all the other kids in football. Some of you guys had another name for that game. I won't say because it, it's kind of offensive in this modern, politically correct way, but it's smear the, right? Okay? All right? So we played that, and one kid running got hit by six or seven kids with no pads and no helmets, and, and when you scored a touchdown, you earned it. And even if you didn't score, if you got an extra foot, you got an extra inch, you pushed one of your buddies back an inch, not only did you acknowledge it, but they did too. It was okay. When we had field days in school, somebody won and somebody lost, and not everybody got a ribbon. When you went to a tournament, you got a trophy if you won, and you got nothing if you lost. And we took the winner and we said, look at the winner. They did good. If you try one day, that can be you. And I don't care what there is in our technological future, without that economically, this country is going to be a failure in the world. And John better be right about people immigrating here to make that innovation for where we've lost it. And unfortunately, I don't know that he will be because why would I come here? That's so unpatriotic. No, it's a reasonable question for a patriot to ask. What do I now have to offer a person in France or Germany that they can't get more of somewhere else? And if you start thinking about it, it'll be very hard for you to answer that. 
especially if you analyze it like they would as a business person. I don't have an energetic, young, hungry workforce that's well-skilled, well-disciplined, and hard-working waiting for you when you get here to be your staff, do I? Do I? I mean, quit living with the giant foam finger that says USA number one from the 1980 Olympics. Do I have that in America today? Do I have young people? Late teens, early 20s, committed to do whatever it takes to get that first job, to work hard, to see themselves as partners in a business for that entrepreneur to hire. I have a bunch of self-serving, spoiled brats that feel that they're entitled to shit when they're not. And I know I'm upsetting some of you young folks out there that aren't like that. Well, you're listening to me. How many of your friends do? Or how many of the people that aren't your friends but are your age, that are your peers, do? When, when, when my generation grew up, and I'm not that old, I'm in my early freaking 40s. When my generation grew up, the concept that a child would have something like a cell phone was obscenely ridiculous. And it wasn't just that, like, you know, the first brick cell phones were out in the 80s and they were like $1,000 and it was like $10 a minute to call somebody. That's not why it was obscene. If they would have been far more, far more affordable to where the average adult had had one, it still would have been obscene. A kid does not need this. A child does not need this. You want a cell phone, go get a, you need a car first. And you need to pay for your gas, you need a job. And then we can talk about that. Because right now, as long as you don't have a car, if I need to talk to you, I'm going to yell out the window and you're going to hear me. And if you're further away from that, I better know where you are and I'll call somebody else, his parents, to get a hold of you. See, that's how it worked. Now we have a generation who's grown up with everything handed to them that are supposed to be the up-and-coming entrepreneurs to deal with people like me who haven't hung up the gloves yet. But I'm not training hard. right? I'm not training hard like I did when I was 20-something and I, had, I was a challenger. It's like every sport's this way. Every heavyweight champion eventually goes into decline. And it's usually not just an age thing. It's usually once you've made enough money and you've had enough success and you've been beaten on enough, I don't want this anymore. I'd rather take a few uh, you know, publicity deals and start a business. You know, I'll have other people run for me out of my celebrity status. You know, but you're not getting up at four o'clock in the morning anymore and doing sit-ups while somebody hits you in the, in the stomach with a, with, a, with a ball, with a medicine ball. But that's how people like me worked in our 20s to become successful. Now, it's a metaphor. I wasn't really hitting it. Come on, right? But that's, that, was, that was the, I will do whatever it takes. I will do anything. To get, when I came to Texas, I got my first job into the telecommunications field. I made very little money, and I spent all my time on the road, and I was treated like crap as a contractor, but it gave me experience. And I was when I got that first job, I told the guy to give it to me. I will do anything you need for this opportunity. Whatever it is, I will do it. I will get it done, and I don't care if I don't know how to do it within a month. You'll have people who have been doing it for, for a year that you'll have me supervising. And the guy rolled his eyes, but he gave me the job, and two months later, it was true. 
Because that was the attitude. And that was still encouraged when I was 20 years old. It was certainly encouraged when I was in school. Work hard. And it wasn't a bullshit work hard. It wasn't BS. It wasn't like, because they still talk about it, like work really hard. But that means, you know, do all the things on the lesson plan a teacher gave you. But physical work is actually looked at as being like menial. Everybody go to college, but nobody's got any brains. And competition is wrong. Well, the rest of the world doesn't feel that way. Parts of it do, but most of it doesn't. This spirit still lives in our children. But by God, our generation, my generation, people my age, folks are doing everything you can to kill it, to ruin it, to destroy it. It's, it's, it's almost as if those that were taught this and didn't try as hard, or in some cases did, but didn't succeed, and have had to accept, I'm successful, but this is my limit, want to still feel like they got the gold star, so they're giving it to their children. And you think you're helping, but you're not. And this country has an avalanche of those people. And there's two things that can happen. And there's only two things that can happen now. One is the disaster plays itself out and it's as bad as it sounds. That we have basically a group of incompetent, spoiled young people trying to take over the next level. And a few exceptional people among them have a lot of success, but overall, the nation itself falters. Or, we have a greatest generation that just has yet to be tapped. That's the other, that's the other possibility. There's actually nothing from an ability standpoint, from technical ability and mental ability that these kids don't have. There's no reason that The 20-something of today can't be more successful than the 20-something of 20 years ago. If they'll have that work ethic and that determination. So when push comes to shove, when it happens, and it will, when you're gonna, when they're faced with that decision, when they have their go to war or go to jail moment, metaphorically, if enough of them will pick up and go to war, And understand winning is good. Innovation is good. Success is good. And damn it, it's worth whatever it takes to be able to get in the door and make it happen. To learn, to innovate, to develop. If enough do it, the people around them, their peer groups, will start following and will start emulating. And the truth is, because of all the positive components of what John talked about, especially the internet, and education sharing. This should be the most amazing generation America has ever known. There's more opportunity. There's more freedom in some ways. And when I say freedom, I don't mean constitutional freedom. I mean freedom of choice in what you do with your life. There's greater freedom in that Greater opportunity in that than there's ever been. 
there's a greater flow of knowledge. There's a greater ability to learn. And because there's so much wrong, people that will do more are going to be in high demand. And this should be the generation to make it happen. But will it be? Will we see the rise of this generation and a complete surprise in what they accomplish? Or will we see the results of our failure in what we have taught them? And the answer is, I don't know. But I actually feel it's the biggest risk to the future of the United States of America. It's the biggest risk we have. National debt, money's all a sham anyway. In the end, it's all a sham. They'll come up with a new sham to replace the old sham. It'll upset a lot of people. It'll piss a lot of people off. It'll ruin some lives. But in the end, the economy will rebuild itself and we'll walk, we'll walk along. But if this nation is going to stay at the forefront of the world from being a place that people actually want to come to, to be the place that we've all been told our whole lives that it is, then the people in my generation and older, you know, we're not going to be the ones to make it happen. All we can do is be good examples in the middle to the twilights of our careers And hopefully, the people that are coming in behind us are going to keep going forward. But when I think about what we've done to them, I wonder if they're going to be able to. But every time I think that way, let me tell you what really happens. I meet a couple, three of them, and go, yeah, this one can, that one can. Wow, there must be more of these than I thought. And I think it's because the human spirit is resilient and most people will only accept so much programming before they rebel. So that's my hope. My hope is this generation will fulfill its capability, what I can think is its destiny. But by God, I feel like society and government and the majority of parents are doing every single thing they can to prevent it. And I have a solution. Be a mentor. Be a mentor. If you know that's wrong, you can only do so much. You only have so many of your own kids. But if you can, be a mentor. And I don't know that you need to be a mentor to children. Be a mentor to young adults. 20-somethings. Teach them what you know. Learn from them. Because they are more aggressive and more innovative and more willing to learn new things and more willing to risk than you are. They are. Sometimes they don't know it. Give them half a chance and they'll make it happen. That's my best advice that I can give you today. Future of the economy, radical shifts, lots of pain, and major opportunities. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
Show you.